Let's begin with our first story, A Case of Eavesdropping, by Algernon Blackwood. Jim Shorthouse was the sort of fellow who always made a mess of things. Everything with which his hands or mind came into contact issued from such contact in an unqualified and irremutable state of mess. His college days were a mess. He was twice rusticated. His school days were a mess. He went to half a dozen, each passing him on to the next, with a worse character and in a more developed state of mess. His early boyhood was the sort of mess that copy books and dictionaries spell with a big M. And his babyhood, ugh, was the embodiment of howling, yowling, and a screaming mess. At the age of forty, however, there came a change in his troubled life. He met a girl with a half a million in her own right who consented to marry him, and who very soon succeeded in reducing his most messy existence into a state of comparative order and system. Certain incidents, important and otherwise, of Jim's life would never have come to be told here, but for the fact that in getting into his messes, and out of them again, he succeeded in drawing himself into the atmosphere of particular circumstances and strange happenings. He attracted to his path the curious adventures of life, unfailingly as meat attracts flies and jam wasps. It is to the meat and jam of his life, so to speak, that he owes his experiences. His afterlife was all pudding, which attracts nothing but greedy children. With marriage the interest of his life ceased for all but one person, and his path became regular as the sun's, instead of erratic as a comet's. The first experience in order of time that he related to me shows that somewhere latent behind his disarranged nervous system there lay a psychic perceptions of uncommon order. About the age of twenty-two, I think after his second rustication, his father's purse and patience had equally given out and Jim found himself stranded high and dry in a large American city. High and dry, and the only clothes that had no holes in them safely in the keeping of his uncle's wardrobe. Careful reflection on a bench in one of the city parks led him to the conclusion that the only thing to do was persuade the city editor of one of the daily journals that he possessed an observant mind and a ready pen, and that he could do good work for your paper, sir, as a reporter. This then he did, standing at a most unnatural angle between the editor and the window to conceal the whereabouts of the holes. "'Guess we'll have to give you a week's trial,' said the editor, who ever on the lookout for a chance material, took on shoals of men in a way that retained an average one man per shoal. Anyhow, it gave Jim Shorthouse the wherewithal to sew up the holes and to relieve his uncle's wardrobe of its burden. And then he went to find living quarters— and in this proceeding his unique characteristics already referred to, what theopicists would call karma, began unmistakably to assert themselves, for it was in that house that he eventually selected that this sad tale took place. There are no diggings in American cities. The alternatives for small incomes are grim enough. Rooms in a boarding house where meals are served, or in a room house where no meals were served, not even breakfast. Rich people live in palaces, of course. But Jim had nothing to do with Sitch-like. His horizon was bounded by boarding-houses and room-houses, and, owing to the necessary irregularity of his meals and hours, he took the latter. It was a large, gaunt-looking place in the side street, with dirty windows and a creaking iron gate. But the rooms were large, and the one he selected and paid for in advance was on the top floor. The landlady looked gaunt and dusty as the house, and quite as old 
Her eyes were green and faded, and her features large. Well, she twanged, with her electrifying western drawl. That's the room, if you like it, and that's the price I said. Now, if you want it, why just say so, and if you don't, why it don't hurt me any. Jim wanted to shake her, but he feared the clouds of the long-accumulated dust in her clothes, and as a price of the size of the room suited him, he decided to take it. Anyone else on this floor, he asked. She looked at him queerly out of her faded eyes before she answered. None of my guests ever put such questions to me before, she said. But I guess you're different. Why, there's no one at all but an old gent that stayed here every bit of five years. He's over there, pointing to the end of the passage. Oh, I see, said Shorthouse feebly. So I'm alone up here? Reckon you are pretty near, she twanged out, ending the conversation abruptly by turning her back on her new guest and going slowly and deliberately down the stairs. The newspaper work kept Shorthouse out most of the night. Three times a week he got home at 1 a.m., and three times at 3 a.m. The room proved comfortable enough, and he paid for a second week. His unusual hours had so far prevented his meeting of any inmates of the house, and not a sound had been heard from the old gent who shared the floor with him. It seemed a very quiet house. One night, about the middle of the second week, he came home tired after a long day's work. The lamp that usually stood all night in the hall had burned itself out, and he had to stumble upstairs in the dark. He made considerable noise doing so, but nobody seemed to be disturbed. The whole house was utterly quiet, and probably everybody was asleep. There were no lights under any of the doors, and all was in darkness. It was after two o'clock. After reading some English letters that had come during the day, and dipping for a few minutes into a book, he became drowsy and got ready for bed. Just as he was about to get in between the sheets, he stopped for a moment and listened. There rose in the night, as he did so, the sound of steps somewhere in the house below. Listening attentively, he heard that it was somebody coming up the stairs, a heavy tread, and the owner taking no pains to step quietly. On it came up the stairs, tramp, 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 eventually the tread of a big man, and one in something of a hurry. At once, thoughts connected somehow with fire and police flashed through Jim's brain, but there were no sounds of voices with the steps, and he reflected in the same moment that it could only be the old gentleman, keeping late hours and troubling up the stairs in the darkness. It was in the act of turning out the gas and stepping into bed, when the house resumed its former stillness by the footsteps suddenly coming to a dead stop, immediately outside his own room. With his hand on the gas, Shorthouse paused a moment before turning out to see if the steps would go on again, when he was startled by a loud knocking on his door. Instantly, in obedience to a curious and unexplained instinct, he turned out the light, leaving himself in the room in total darkness. He had scarcely taken a step across the room to open the door, when a voice from the other side of the wall, so close it almost sounded in his ear, exclaimed a German, "'Is that you, father? Come in!' The speaker was a man in the next room, and the knocking, after all, had not been on his own door, but on that of the adjoining chamber, which had supposed to be vacant. Almost before the man in the passage had time to answer in German, "'Let me in at once,' Jim heard someone across the floor and unlocked the door. Then it slammed with a bang, and there was audible the sound of footsteps about the room, and the chairs being drawn up to a table and knocking against furniture on the way. The men seemed woolly regardless of their neighbor's comfort, for they made noise enough to waken the dead. 
Serves me right for taking a room in such a cheap hole, reflected Jim in the darkness. I wonder who she's let the room to. The two rooms, the landlady had told him, were originally one. She had put up a thin partition, just a row of boards, to increase her income. The doors were adjacent, and only separated by a massive upright beam between them. When one was opened or shut, the other rattled. With other indifference to the comfort of the other sleepers in the house, the two Germans had meanwhile commenced to talking both at once and at the top of their voices. They talked empathetically, even angrily. The words father and Otto were freely used. Shorthouse understood German, but as he stood listening for the first minute or two, an eavesdropper in spite of himself, it was difficult to make head or tail of the talk, for neither would give way to the other, and the jumble of guttural sounds and unfinished sentences were wholly unintelligible. Then, very suddenly, both voices dropped together, and after a moment's pause, the deep tones of one of them, who seemed to be the father, said, with the most utmost distinctness, "'You mean, Otto, that you refuse to get it?' There was a sound of someone shuffling in the chair before the answer came. "'I mean that I don't know how to get it. It is so much, father. It is too much.' "'Part of it, part of it,' cried the other, with an angry oath. "'A part of it, when you ruin the disgrace, are already in the house, is worse than useless.' If you can get half, you can get it all, you wretched fool. Half measures only damn all concerned. You told me last time, began the other firmly, but was not allowed to finish. A succession of horrible oaths drowned his sentence, and the father went on in a voice vibrating with anger. You know she will give you anything. You have only been married a few months. If you ask and give a plausible reason, you can get all we want and more. You can ask it temporarily, and all will be paid back. It will re-establish the firm, and she will never know what was done with it. With that amount, Otto, you know I can recoup all those terrible losses. And in less than a year, all will be repaid. But without it, you must get it, Otto. You hear me? You must. I am to be arrested for the misuse of trust monies? Is our honored name to be cursed and spat on? The old man choked and stammered in his anger and desperation. Shorthouse stood shivering in the darkness and listening in spite of himself. The conversation had carried him along with it, and he had been for some reason afraid to let his neighborhood be known. But at this point he realized that he had listened too long, and that he must inform the two men that they could be overheard to every single syllable. So he coughed loudly, and at the same time rattled the handle of his door. It seemed to have no effect, for the voices continued just as loudly as before, the son protesting and the father growing more and more angry. He coughed again purposely, and also contrived purposely in the darkness to tumble against the partition, feeling the thin boards yield easily under his weight, and making a considerable noise in doing so. But the voices went on unconcernedly and louder than ever. Could it be possible that they had not heard? By this time Jim was more concerned about his own sleep than the morality of overhearing the private scandals of his neighbors, and he went out to the passage and knocked smartly on their door. Instantly, as if by magic, the sound ceased. Everything dropped to utter silence. There was no light under the door, and not a whisper could be heard within. He knocked again, but received no answer. Gentlemen, he began at length, with his lips close to the keyhole in German, please do not talk so loud. I can overhear all you say in the next room. Besides, it is very late, and I wish to sleep. He paused and listened, but no answer was forthcoming. He turned the handle and found the door was locked. Not a sound broke the stillness of the night except a faint swish of the wind over the skylight and the creaking of a board here and there in the house below. 
The cold air of early morning crept down the passage and made him shiver. The silence of the house began to impress him disagreeably. He looked behind him and about him, hoping and yet fearing that something would break the stillness. The voices still seemed to ring on in his ears, but that sudden silence when he knocked on the door affected him far more unpleasantly than the voices, and put strange thoughts in his brain, thoughts he did not like or approve. Moving stealthily from the door, he peered over the banisters into the space below. It was like a deep vault that might conceal in its shadows anything that was not good. It was not difficult to fancy he saw an indistinct moving to and fro below him. Was that a figure sitting on the stairs, peering up obliquely at him out of hideous eyes? Was that a sound of whispering and shuffling down there in the dark halls and forsaken landings? Was it something more than the inarticulate murmur of the night? The wind made an effort overhead, singing over the skylight, and the door behind him rattled and made him start. He turned to go back to his room, and the draft slowly closed the door in his face, as if someone were pressing against it from the other side. When he pushed it open and went in, a hundred shadowy forms seemed to dart swiftly and silently back into their corners and hiding places. But in the adjoining room the sounds had entirely ceased, and Shorthouse soon crept into bed and left the house with its inmates working or sleeping, to take care of themselves, while he entered the region of dreams and silence. The next day, strong in common sense that the sunlight brings, he determined to lodge a complaint against the noisy occupants of the next room, and to make the landlady request them to modify their voices at such late hours of the night and morning. But it so happened that she was not to be seen that day, and when he returned from the office at midnight it was, of course, too late. Looking under the door as he came up to bed, he noticed that there was no light, and concluded that the Germans were not in. So much better. He went to sleep about one o'clock, fully decided that if they came up later and woke him with their horrible noises, he would not rest until he had roused the landlady and made her reprove them with that authoritative twang, in which every word was like the lash of a metallic whip. However, there proved to be no need for such drastic measures. For Shorthouse slumbered peacefully all night in his dreams, chiefly out of the fields of grain and flocks of sheep in the faraway farms of his father's estate, were permitted to run their fanciful course unbroken. Two nights later, however, when he had came home tired out after a difficult day, and wet and blown about by one of the wickest storms he had ever seen, his dreams always of the fields and sheep were not destined to be so undisturbed. He had already dozed off in that delicious glow that follows the removal of wet clothes in the immediate snuggling under warm blankets, when his consciousness, hovering over the borderland between sleep and waking, was vaguely troubled by a sound that rose indistinctly from the depths of the house, and between the gusts of wind and rain reached his ears with accompanying sense of uneasiness and discomfort. It rose on the night air with some pretense of regularity, dying away again in the roar of the wind, to reassert itself distinctly in the deep, brief hushes of the storm. A few minutes later, Jim's dreams were colored only, tinged, as it were, by the impression of fear approaching from somewhere insensibly upon him. His consciousness, at first, refused to be drawn back from what the enchanted region where it had wandered, and he did not immediately awaken. But the nature of his dreams changed unpleasantly. He saw the sheep suddenly run huddled together, as though frightened by the neighborhood of an enemy while the fields of waving corn became agitated as though some monster were moving unclawfully among the crowded stalks. The sky grew dark, and in his dream an awful sound came somewhere from the clouds. It was in reality the sound of downstairs growing more distinct. 
Shorthouse shifted uneasily across the bed with something like a groan of distress. The next time he awoke, he found himself sitting straight up in bed, listening. Was it a nightmare? Had he been dreaming evil dreams? For his flesh crawled and the hair stirred on his head. The room was dark and silent, but outside the wind howled dismally and drove the rain with repeated assaults against the rattling windows. How nice it would be, the thought flashed through his mind, if all the winds like the west wind went down with the sun. They made such fiendish noises at night, like the crying of angry voices. In the daytime they had such a different sound, if only. It was no dream at all, for the sound was momentarily growing louder, and its cause was coming up the stairs. He found himself speculating feebly that this cause might be, but the sound was too indistinct to enable him to arrive at any definite conclusion. The voice of a church clock striking two made itself heard above the wind. It was just about the hour when the Germans had commerced their performance three nights before. Shorthouse made up his mind that if they began it again he would not put up with it for very long. Yet he was already horribly conscious of the difficulty he would have getting out of the bed. The clothes were so warm and comforting against his back. The sound, still steadily coming nearer, had by this time differentiated from the confused clamor of the elements, and had resolved itself into the footsteps of one or more persons. The Germans hang em, thought Jim. But what on earth is the matter with me? I never felt so queer in all my life. He was trembling all over, and felt as cold as though he were in a freezing atmosphere. His nerves were steady enough, and he felt no diminution of physical courage but he was cautious of a curious sense of malice and trepidation, such as even the most victorious men could have been known to experience when the first grip was some horrible and deadly disease. As the footsteps approached, this feeling of weakness increased. He felt a strange lassitude creeping over him, a sort of exhaustion, accompanied by a growing numbness of the extremities, and a sensation of dreaminess in the head, as if perhaps the consciousness were leaving its accustomed seat in the brain and preparing to act in another plane. Yet strange to say, as the vitality was slowly withdrawn from his body, his senses seemed to grow more acute. Meanwhile the steps were already on the landing at the top of the stairs, and Shorthouse, still sitting upright in bed, heard a heavy body brush past his door and along the wall outside. Almost immediately afterwards the loud knocking of someone's knuckles on the door of the adjoining room. Instantly, though so far not a sound had proceeded from within, he heard through the thin partition a chair pushed back, and a man quickly crossed the floor and opened the door. "'Ah, it's you,' he heard in a son's voice. Had the fellow then been sitting silently in there all this time, waiting for the father's arrival? To Shorthouse it came not as a pleasant reflection by any means. There was no answer to this dubious greeting, but the door was closed quickly, and then there was the sound of the bag or parcel that had been thrown on a wooden table and had slid distance across it before stopping. "'What is that?' asked the son, with anxiety in his tone. "'You may know before I go,' returned the other gruffly. Indeed, his voice was more than gruff. It portrayed ill-suppressed passion. Shorthouse was conscious of a strong desire to stop the conversation before it proceeded any further. But somehow or other his will has not equal to the task, and he could not get out of bed. The conversation went on, every tone and inflection distinctly audible above the noise of the storm." In a low voice, the father continued. Jim missed some of the words at the beginning of the sentence. It ended with, But now they've all left, and I've managed to get up to you. You know what I've come for. There was a distinct menace in his tone. Yes, returned the other. I've been waiting. And the money? asked the father impatiently. No answer. 
You've had three days to get it in, and I've contrived to stave off the worst so far. But tomorrow is the end. No answer. Speak, Otto, what have you got for me? Speak, my son, for God's sake, tell me. There is a moment of silence, during which the old man's vibrating accents seemed to echo through the rooms. Then came in a low voice the answer. I have nothing. Otto, cried the other with passion. Nothing. I can get nothing, came almost in a whisper. You lie, cried the other, in a half-stilled voice. I swear you lie, give me the money. A chair was heard scraping along the floor. Evidently the men had been sitting over a table, and one of them had risen. Shorthouse heard the bang of a parcel down across the table, and then a step as if one of the men was passing the door. "'Father, what is in that? I must know,' said Otto, with the first signs of determination in his voice. There must have been an effort on the son's part to gain possession of the parcel in question, and the father to retain it, for between them it fell to the ground. A curious rattle followed its contact with the floor. Instantly there were sounds of a scuffle. The men were struggling for the possession of the box— the elder man with the oaths and blasphemous imprecations, the other with short gasps and betokened of the strength of his efforts. It was of short duration, and the younger man had evidently won, for a minute later was heard an angry exclamation. I knew it! Her jowls! You scoundrel! You shall never have them! It is a crime! The elder man uttered a short, guttural laugh, which froze Jim's blood and made his skin creep. No word was spoken, and for the pace of ten seconds there was a living silence. Then the air trembled with the sound of a thud, followed immediately by a groan, and the crash of a heavy body falling over on the table. A second later, there was a lurching from the table on the floor and against the partition that separated the rooms. The bed quivered an instant at the shock, but the unholy spell was lifted from his soul, and Jim Shorthouse sprang out of bed and across the floor in a single bound. He knew that ghastly murder had been done, the murder by a father of his son. With shaking fingers but a determined heart, he lit the gas and the first thing in which his eyes corroborated the evidence of his ears was horrifying detail, that the lower portion of the partition bulged unnaturally into his own room. The glaring paper with which was covered had cracked under the tension and the boards beneath it bent inwards towards him. What hideous load was behind them, he shuddered to think. All this he saw in less than a second. Once the final lurch against the wall, not a sound had proceeded from the room, not even a groan or a footstep. All was still but the howl of the wind, which to his ears had in it a note of triumphant horror. Shorthouse was in the act of leaving the room to rouse the house and to send for police. In fact, his hand was already on the doorknob when something in the room arrested his attention. Out of the corner of his eyes, he thought he caught a sight of something moving. He was sure of it, and turning his eyes in the direction, he found he was not mistaken. Something was creeping slowly towards him along the floor. It was something dark and serpentine in shape, and it came from the place where the partition had bulged. He stooped down to examine it, with feelings of intense horror and repugnance, and he discovered that it was moving toward him from the other side of the wall. His eyes were fascinated, and for the moment he was unable to move. Silently, slowly, from side to side, like a thick worm, it crawled forward into the room beneath his frightened eyes until at length he could stand it no longer, and stretched out his arm to touch it. But at the instant of contact he withdrew his hand and suppressed a scream. It was sluggish, it was warm, and he saw that his fingers were stained with living crimson. A second more, and Shorthouse was out in the passage with his hand on the door of the next room. It was locked. 
He plunged forward with all his weight against it. In the lock giving way, he fell headlong into a room that was pitch dark and very cold. In a moment he was on his feet again and trying to penetrate the blackness. Not a sound. Not a movement. Not even a sense of presence. It was empty. Miserably empty. Across the room he could trace the outline of a window, with the rain streaming down the outside and the blurred lights of the city beyond. But the room was empty, appallingly empty, and so still. He stood there, cold as ice, staring, shivering, listening. Suddenly there was a step behind him, and a light flashed into the room, and when he turned quickly with his arm up as if to ward off a terrific blow, he found himself face to face with the landlady. Instantly the reaction began to set in. It was nearly three o'clock in the morning, and he was standing there with bare feet and striped pajamas in a small room, which the merciful light he perceived to be absolutely empty, carpetless, and without a stick of furniture or even a window blind. There he stood staring at a disagreeable landlady, and there she stood too, staring and silent, in a black wrapper, her head almost bald, her face white as chalk, shading a sputtering candle with one bony hand, and peering over at him with her blinking green eyes. She looked positively hideous. Well, she drawled at length, I heard you right enough. Guess you couldn't sleep. Or just prowling around a bit, is that it? The empty room, the absence of all traces of recent tragedy, the silence, the hour, his striped pajamas and bare feet, everything together combined to deprive him momentarily of speech. He stared at her blankly without a word. Well, clanked the awful voice, "'My dear woman,' he burst out finally, "'there's been something awful.' So far his desperation took him, but no further. He positively stuck at the substantive. "'Oh, there hasn't been nothing,' she said slowly, still peering at him. "'I reckon you've only seen and heard what the others did. "'I never can keep folks on this floor long. "'Most of them catch on sooner or later, that is, "'the ones that kind of quick and sensitive.' Only you being an Englishman, I thought you wouldn't mind. Nothing really happens. It's only thinking like. Shorthouse was beside himself. He felt ready to pick her up and drop her off over the banisters, candle and all. Look there, he said, pointing at her within an inch of her blinking eyes, with the fingers that had touched the oozing blood. Look there, my good woman. Is that only thinking? She stared a minute, as if not knowing what he meant. I guess so, she said at length. He followed her eyes, and to his amazement saw that his fingers were white as usual, and quite free from awful stain that had been there ten minutes before. There was no sign of blood. No amount of staring could bring it back. Had he had gone out of his mind? Had his eyes and ears played such tricks with him? Had his senses become false and perverted? He dashed past the landlady out into the passage, and gained his own room in a couple of strides. The partition no longer bulged. The paper was not torn. There was no creeping, crawling thing in the faded old carpet. It's all over now, drawled the metallic voice behind him. I'm going to bed again. He turned and saw the landlady slowly going down the stairs again, still shading the candle with her hand and peering up at him from time to time as she moved. A black, ugly, unwholesome object, he thought, as she disappeared into the darkness below, and the last flicker of her candle threw a queer-shaped shadow along the wall and over the ceiling. Without hesitating a moment, Shorthouse threw himself into his clothes and went out of the house. He preferred the storm to the horrors of that top floor, and he walked the streets till daylight. In the evening, he told the landlady he would leave the next day, in spite of her assurances that nothing more would happen. 
It never comes back, she said. That is, not after he's killed. Shorthouse gasped. You gave me a lot for my money, he growled. Well, it aren't my show, she drawled. I'm no spirit medium. You take chances. Some will sleep right along and never hear nothing. Others like yourself, they're different and get the whole thing. Who's the old gentleman? Does he hear it? asked Jim. There's no gentleman at all, she answered coolly. I just told you that to make you feel easy in case you did hear anything. You were all alone on that floor. Say now, she went on, after a pause in which Shorthouse could think of nothing to say but unpublishable things. Say now, do tell, did you feel of a sort of cold when the show was on? Sort of tired and weak, I mean. As if you might be going to die. How could I say, he answered savagely. What I felt God only knows. Well, but he won't tell, she drowned out. Only I was wondering how you really did feel, because the man who had that room last was found one morning in bed. In bed? He was dead. He was the one before you. Oh, you don't need to get rattled so. You're all right. And it really happened, they do say. This house used to be a private residence some twenty-five years ago, and a certain family, the name of Steinhardt, lived here. They had a big business in Wall Street and stood way up in things. Ah, said her listener. Oh, yes, they did, right at the top. Till one fine day it all bust and the old man skipped with the boodle. Skipped with the boodle? That's so, she said. Got clear away with all the money, and the son was found dead in this house. Committed suicide, it was thought. Though there was some as said that he couldn't have stabbed himself and fallen in that position. They said he was murdered. The father died in prison. They tried to fasten the murder on him, but there was no motive or no evidence, or no something, I forget now. Very pretty, said Shorthouse. I'll show you something mighty queer anyway, she drawled. If you'll come upstairs a minute, I've heard the steps and the voices lots of times. They don't faze me any. I'd just as leave here so many dogs barking. You'll find the whole story in the newspapers if you look it up. Not what goes on here, but the story of the Germans. My house would be ruined if they told all, and I'd be sued for damages. They reached the bedroom, and the woman went in and pulled up the edge of the carpet where Shorthouse had seen the blood soaking in the previous night. Look there, if you feel it, said the old hag. Stooping down, he saw a dark, dull stain in the boards that corresponded exactly to the shape and position of the blood as he had seen it. The night he had slept in the hotel, and the following day sought new quarrels. In the newspapers on file in his office, after a long search, he found twenty years back the detailed story. Substantially, as the old women had said, the Steinhardt and Co.'s failure, the absconding and subsequent arrest of the senior partner, and the suicide or murder of his own son, Otto. The landlady's room house had formerly been their private residence. It was eleven o'clock at night, and young Marriott was locked into his room, cramming as hard as he could cram. He was a fourth-year man at Edinburgh University, and he had been plowed for this particular examination so often that his parents had positively declared they could no longer supply the funds to keep him there. His rooms were cheap and dingy, but it was the lecture fees that took the money. 
so Marriott pulled himself together at last, and definitely made up his mind that he would pass or die in the attempt, and for some weeks now, he had been reading as hard as a mortal man can read. He was trying to make up for lost time and money, in a way that showed, conclusively, he did not understand the value of either. For no ordinary man, and Marriott was in every sense an ordinary man, can afford to drive his mind as he had lately been driving his, without sooner or later paying the cost. Among the students he had a few friends or acquaintances, but these few had promised not to disturb him at night, knowing he was at last reading in earnest. It was therefore with feelings a good deal stronger than mere surprise that he heard his doorbell ring on this particular night, and he realized that he was to have a visitor. Some men would simply have muffled the bell and gone on quietly with their work, but Marriott was not this sort. He was nervous. It would have bothered and pecked at his mind all night long not to know who the visitor was and what he wanted. The only thing to do, therefore, was to let him in and out again as quickly as possible. The landlady went to bed at ten o'clock punctually, after which hour nothing would induce her to pretend she heard the bell, so Marriott jumped up from his books with an exclamation that argued ill for the reception of his caller, and prepared to let him in on his own hand. The streets of Edinburgh town were very still at this late hour. It was late for Edinburgh, and in the quiet neighborhood of F streets, where Marriott lived on the third floor, scarcely a sound broke the silence. As he crossed the floor, the bell rang a second time, with unnecessary clamor. And he unlocked the door and passed into the little hallway, with considerable wrath and annoyance in his heart at the insolence of the double interruption. The fellows all know I'm reading for this exam. Why in the world do they come bother me at such an unearthly hour? The inhabitants of the building, with himself, were medical students, general students, poor writers to the signets, and others whose vocations were perhaps not so obvious. The stone staircase, dimly lighted at each floor by a gas jet that would not turn above a certain height, wound down to the level of the street with no pretense of carpet or railing. At some levels it was cleaner than that of others. It depended on the landlady of the particular level. The acoustic properties of a spiral staircase seemed to be peculiar. Marriott, standing by the door, book in hand, thought every moment the owner of the footsteps would come into view. The sound of the boots was so close and so loud that they seemed to travel disproportionately in advance of their cause. Wondering who it could be, he stood ready with all manner of sharp greetings for the man who dared thus to disturb his work. But the man did not appear. The steps sounded almost under his nose, yet no one was visible. A sudden queer sensation of fear passed over him, a faintness and a shiver down the back. It went, however, almost as soon as it came, and he was just debating whether he would call aloud to his invisible visitor, or slam the door and return to his books, when the cause of the disturbance turned the corner very slowly and came into view. It was a stranger. He saw a youngish man, short of figure and very broad. 
His face was the color of a piece of chalk, and the eyes, which were very bright, had heavy lines underneath them. Though the cheeks and chin were unshaven and the general appearance unkempt, the man was evidently a gentleman, for he was well-dressed and bore himself with a certain air. But the strangest of all, he wore no hat and carried none in his hand, and although rain had been falling steadily all evening, he appeared to have neither overcoats nor umbrella. A hundred questions sprang up in Marriott's mind and rushed to his lips, chief among with something like, Who in the world are you? And, What in the name of heaven do you come to me for? But none of these questions found time to express themselves in words, for almost all at once the caller turned his head a little so that the gaslight in the hall fell upon his features from a new angle. Then, in a flash, Marriott recognized him. Field! Man alive, is it you? He gasped. The fourth-year man was not lacking in intuition, and he perceived at once that here was a case of delicate treatment. He divined, without any actual process of thought, that the catastrophe often predicted had come at last, and that this man's father had turned him out of the house. They had been at private school together years before, and though they had hardly met once since, the news had not failed to reach him from time to time, with considerable detail, for the family lived near his own and between certain of sisters. There was great intimacy. Young Field had gone wild later. He remembered hearing about it all. Drink, a woman, opium, or something of the sort, he could not exactly call to mind. Come in, he said at once, his anger vanishing. There's been something wrong, I can see. Come in and tell me about it. Perhaps I can help. He hardly knew what to say and stammered a lot more besides. The dark side of life and the horror of it belonged to a world that lay remote from his own. Select little atmosphere of books and dreamings. But he had a man's heart for all that. He led the way across the hall, shutting the front door carefully behind him, and noticed as he did so that the other, though certainly sober, was unsteady on his legs, and evidently much exhausted. Marriott might not be able to pass his examinations, but at least he knew the symptoms of starvation, acute starvation, unless he was much mistaken, when they stared him in the face. "'Come along!' he said cheerfully, with a genuine sympathy in his voice. I'm glad to see you. I was going to have a bite of something to eat, and you're just in time to join me. The other made no audible reply, and shuffled so feebly with his feet that Marriott took his arm by way of support. He noticed for the first time that the clothes hung upon him with a pitiful looseness. The broad frame was literally hardly more than a frame. He was as thin as a skeleton, but as he touched him, the sensation of faintness and dread returned. It only lasted a moment and then passed off, and as he ascribed it not unnaturally to the distress and shock of seeing a former friend in such a pitiful sight. Better let me guide you. It's shamefully dark. This hall, I mean. I'm always complaining he said lightly, recognizing by the weight upon his arm that the guidance was sorely needed. 
but the old cat never does anything except promise. He led him to a sofa, wondering all the time where he had come from and how he'd found out the address. It must have been at least seven years since those days at the private school when they used to be such close friends. Now, if you'll forgive me for a minute, he said, I'll get supper ready, such as it is. And don't bother to talk. Just take it easy on the sofa. I see you're dead tired. You can tell me about it afterwards, and we'll make plans. The other sat down on the edge of the sofa and stared in silence, while Marriott got out the brown loaf, scones, and a huge pot of marmalade that Edinburgh students always kept in their cupboards. His eyes shone with a brightness that suggested drugs, Marriott thought, stealing a glance at him from behind the cupboard door. He did not like yet to take a full square look. The fellow was in a bad way, and it would have been so like an examination to stare and wait for explanations. Besides, he was evidently almost too exhausted to speak. So for reasons of delicacy, and for another reason as well, which he could not exactly formulate himself, he let his visitor rest apparently unnoticed, while he busied himself with the supper. He lit the spirit lamp to make cocoa, and when the water was boiling... He drew up the table with the good things to the sofa, so that Field need not even have the trouble of moving to a chair. Now, let's tuck in, he said, and afterwards we'll have a pipe and a chat. I'm reading for an exam, you know, and I always have something about this time. It's jolly to have a companion. He looked up and caught his guest's eyes directed straight upon his own. An involuntary shudder ran through him from head to foot. The face opposite of him was deadly white and wore a dreadful expression of pain and mental suffering. My God, he said, jumping up. I quite forgot. I've got some whiskey somewhere. What an ass I am. I never touch it myself when I'm working like this. He went to the cupboard and poured out a stiff glass which the other swallowed at a single gulp without any water. Mary had watched him while he drank it, and at the same time, noticed something else as well. Field's coat was all over dust, and on one shoulder was a bit of cobweb. It was perfectly dry. Field arrived on a soaking wet night without a hat, umbrella, and overcoat, and yet perfectly dry, even dusty. Therefore, he had been under cover. What did it all mean? Had he been hiding in the building? It was very strange, yet he volunteered nothing, and Marriott had pretty well made up his mind by this time that he would not ask any questions until he had eaten and slept. Food and sleep were obviously what the poor devil needed most and first. He was pleased with his powers of ready diagnosis, and it would not be fair to press him till he had recovered a bit. They ate their supper together while the host carried on a running, one-sided conversation, chiefly about himself and his exams and his old cat of a landlady, so that the guests need not utter a single word unless he really wished to, which he evidently did not. But while he toyed with his food, feeling no desire to eat, the other ate voraciously. 
To see a hungry man devour cold scones, stale oat cake, and brown bread laden with marmalade was a revelation to this inexperienced student who had never known what it was to be without at least three meals a day. He watched in spite of himself, wondering why the fellow did not choke in the process. But Field seemed to be as sleepy as he was hungry. More than once, his head dropped and he ceased to masticate the food in his mouth. Marriott had positively to shake him before he would go on with his meal. A stronger emotion will overcome a weaker, but the struggle between the sting of real hunger and the magical opiate of overpowering sleep was a curious sight to the student, who watched it with mingled astonishment and alarm. He had heard of the pleasure it was to feed hungry men and watch them eat, but he had never actually witnessed it, and he had no idea it was like this. Field ate like an animal, gobbled, stuffed, gorged. Marriott forgot his reading and began to feel something very much like a lump in his throat. Afraid there's been awfully little to offer you, old man, he managed to blurt out when at length that last scone had disappeared, but the rapid one-sided meal was at an end. Field still made no reply, for he was almost asleep in his seat. He merely looked up wearily and gratefully. Now you must have some sleep, you know, he continued, or you'll go to pieces. I shall be up all night reading for this blessed exam. You're more than welcome to my bed. Tomorrow we'll have a late breakfast and and see what can be done and make plans. I'm awfully good at making plans, you know, he added with an attempt at lightness. Field maintained his dead, sleepy silence, but appeared to acquiesce, and the other led the way into his bedroom, apologizing as he did so to this half-starved son of a baronet, whose own home was almost a palace for the size of the room. The wary guest, however, made no pretense of thanks or politeness. He merely steadied himself on his friend's arm as he staggered across the room, and then, with all his clothes on, dropped his exhausted body into the bed. In less than a minute, he was to all appearances sound asleep. For several minutes, Marriott stood in the open door and watched him, praying devoutly that he might never find himself in a like predicament, and then fell to wondering what he would do with his unbidden guest on the morrow. But he did not stop long to think, for the call of his books was imperative, and happened what might, he must see to it that he passed that examination. Having again locked the door into the hall, he sat down to his books and resumed on his notes a Materia Medica, where he left off when the bell rang. But it was difficult for some time to concentrate his mind on the subject. His thoughts kept wandering to the picture of that white-faced, strange-eyed fellow, starved and dirty, lying in his clothes and boots on the bed. He recalled their school days together, before they had drifted apart, and now they had vowed internal friendship and all the rest of it. And now, what horrible straits to be in. How could any man let the love of dissipation take such hold upon him? But one of their vows together, Marriott, it seemed, had completely forgotten. Just now, at any rate, it lay too far in the background of his memory to be recalled. 
Through the half-open door, the bedroom led out of the sitting room and had no other door, came the sound of a deep, long-drawn breathing, the regular steady breathing of a tired man, so tired that even to listen to it made Marriott almost want to go to sleep himself. He needed it, reflected the students, and perhaps it came only just in time. Perhaps so, for outside the bitter wind from across the forth hallowed cruelly and drove the rain in cold streams against the window panes and down the deserted streets. Long before Mary had settled down again properly to his reading, he heard distantly, as it were, through the sentences of his book, the heavy, deep breathing of the sleeper in the next room. A couple of hours later, when he yawned and changed his books, he still heard the breathing and went cautiously up to the door to look around. At first the darkness of the room must have deceased him, or else his eyes were confused and dazzled by the recent glare of the reading lamp. For a minute or two he could make out nothing at all but dark lumps of furniture, the mass of chest of drawers by the wall, and the white patch where his bath stood in the center of the floor. Then the bed slowly came into view, and on it he saw the outline of the sleeping body gradually take shape before his eyes, growing up strangely into the darkness till it stood out in marked relief, the long black form against the white counterpane. He could hardly stop smiling. Field had not moved an inch. He watched him a moment or two, and then returned to his books. The night was full of singing voices of wind and rain. There was no sound of traffic. No hansoms clattered over the cobbles, and it was still too early for the milk carts. He worked on steadily and conscientiously, only stopping now and again to change a book or to sip some of the poisonous stuff that kept him awake and made his brain so active, and on these occasions, Field's breathing was always distinctly audible in the room. Outside, the storm continued to howl, but inside, the house was all stillness. The shade of a reading lamp threw all the light upon the littered table, leaving the other end of the room in comparative darkness. The bedroom door was exactly opposite of him where he sat. There was nothing to disturb the worker, nothing but an occasional rush of wind against the windows and a slight pain in his arm. The pain, however, which was unable to account for, grew once or twice very acute. It bothered him, and he tried to remember how and when he could have bruised himself so severely, but without success. At length the page before him turned from yellow to gray, and there were sounds of wheels in the street below. It was four o'clock. Marriott leaned back and yawned prodigiously. Then he threw back the curtains. The storm had subsided, and the castle rock was shrouded in mist. With another yawn, he turned away from the dreary outlook and prepared to sleep the remaining four hours till breakfast on the sofa. Field was still breathing heavily in the next room, and he first tiptoed across the floor to take another look at him. Peering cautiously round the half-open door, his first glance fell upon the bed, now plainly discernible in the gray light of morning. He stared hard, then rubbed his eyes. Then he rubbed his eyes again, and thrust his head farther around the edge of the door. 
With fixed eyes, he stared harder, still, and harder, but it made no difference at all. He was staring into an empty room. The sensation of fear that he had felt when Field first appeared upon the scene returned suddenly, but with much greater force. He became conscious, too, that his left arm was throbbing violently and causing him great pain. He stood wondering and staring and trying to collect his thoughts. He was trembling from head to foot. By a great effort of the will, he left the support of the door and walked forward boldly into the room. There, upon the bed, was the impress of a body where Field had lain and slept. There was the mark of a head on the pillow and the slight indentation of a foot on the bed where the boots had rested on the counterpane. And there, plainer than ever, for he was closer to it, was the breathing. Marriott tried to pull himself together. With a great effort, he found his voice and called his friend aloud by his name. Field! Is that you? Where are you? There was no reply but the breathing continued without interruption, coming directly from the bed. His voice had such an unfamiliar sound that Marriott did not care to repeat his questions, but he went down on his knees and examined the bed above and below, pulling the mattress off finally and taking the coverings away separately, one by one. But though the sounds continued, and there was no visible sign of field, nor was there any space in which a human being, however small, could have concealed itself. He pulled the bed out from the wall, but the sound stayed where it was. It did not move with the bed. Marriott, finding self-control a little difficult in his weary condition, at once set about a thorough search of the room. He went through the cupboard, the chest of drawers, a little alcove where the clothes hung, everything. But there was no sign of anyone. The small window near the ceiling was closed, and anyhow, was not large enough to let a cat pass. The sitting room door was locked on the inside, and he could not have gotten out that way. Curious thoughts began to trouble Marriott's mind bringing in their train unwelcome sensations. He grew more and more excited. He searched the bed until it resembled the scene of a pillow fight. He searched both rooms, knowing all the time it was useless. And then he searched again. A cold perspiration broke out all over his body, and the sound of heavy breathing all this time never ceased to come from the corner where Field had lain down to sleep. Then he tried something else. He pushed the bed back exactly into its original position, and himself lay down upon it where his guest had lain. But the same instant he sprang up again in a single bound. The breathing was close behind him, almost on his cheek and between him and the wall. Not even a child could have squeezed into the space. He went back into his sitting room, opening the windows, welcoming all the light and air possible, and trying to think the whole matter over quietly and clearly. Men who read too hard and sleep too little, he knew, were sometimes troubled with very vivid hallucinations. Again, he calmly reviewed every incident of the night, his accurate sensations, the vivid details, the emotions stirred in him, the dreadful feast. 
No single hallucination could ever combine all these and cover so long a period of time. But with less satisfaction, he thought of the recurring faintness, a curious sense of horror that had once or twice come over him, and then the violent pains in his arm. These were quite unaccountable. Moreover, now that he began to analyze and examine, there was one other thing that fell upon him like a sudden revelation. During the whole time, Field had not actually uttered a single word. Yet, as though in mockery upon his reflections, there came ever from that inner room the sound of the breathing, long-drawn, deep, and regular. The thing was incredible. It was absurd. Haunted by visions of a brain fever and insanity, Marriott put on his cap and Macintosh and left the house. The morning air on Arthur's seat would blow the cobwebs from his brain, the scent of heather, and above all, the sight of the sea. He roamed over the wet slopes of Holyrood for a couple of hours, and did not return until the exercise had shaken some of the horror out of his bones and given him a ravening appetite into the bargain. As he entered, he saw that there was another man in the room, standing against the window with his back to the light. He recognized his fellow student, Green, who was reading for the same examination. Read hard all night, Marriott, he said, and thought I'd drop here to compare notes and have some breakfast. You're out early, he added, by way of a question. Marriott said that he had a headache and had walked to help it, but Green nodded and said, Ah, but when the girl had set the steaming porridge on the table and gone out again, he went on with a rather forced tone. Didn't know you had any friends who drank, Marriott. This was obviously tentative, and Marriott replied dryly that he did not know either. Sounds just as if some chap were sleeping it off in there, doesn't it, though? Persisted the other with a nod in the direction of the bedroom, and looking curiously at his friend. The two men stared steadily at each other for several seconds, and then Marriott said earnestly, Then you hear it too, thank God! Of course I hear it. The door's open. Sorry if I wasn't meant to. Oh, I don't mean that, said Marriott, lowering his voice. But I'm awfully relieved. Let me explain. Of course, if you hear it too, then it's all right, but really it frightened me more than I could tell you. I thought I was going to have a brain fever or something, and you know what a lot depends on this exam. It always begins with sounds or visions or some sort of beastly hallucination, and I... Rot! ejected the other impatiently. What are you talking about? Now listen to me, Green, said Marriott as calmly as he could, for the breathing was still plainly audible, and I'll tell you what I mean. Only don't interrupt. And thereupon he related exactly what had happened during the night, telling everything, even down to the pain in his arm. When it was over, he got up from the table and crossed the room. You hear the breathing now plainly, don't you? he said. Green said he did. Well, come with me and we'll search the room together. The other, however, did not move from his chair. I've been in already, he said sheepishly. I heard the sounds and thought it was you. The door was ajar, so I went in. Mary made no comment, but pushed the door open as wide as it would go. As it opened, the sound of breathing grew more and more distinct. 
Someone must be in there, said Green under his breath. Someone is in there, but where, said Marriott. Again, he urged his friend to go in with him, but Green refused, point blank, said he had been in once and had searched the room and there was nothing there. He would not go in again for a good deal. They shut the door and retired to the other room to talk about it over with many pipes. Green questioned his friend very closely, but without illuminating results, since questions cannot alter facts. The only thing that ought to have a proper, a logical explanation is the pain in my arm, said Marriott, rubbing that member with an attempt at a smile. It hurts so infernally and aches all the way up. I can't remember bruising it, though. Let me examine it for you, said Green. I'm awfully good at bones, in spite of the examiner's opinion to on the contrary. It was a relief to play the fool a bit, and Marriott took off his coat and rolled up his sleeve. By George, though I'm bleeding, he exclaimed. Look here, what on earth is this? On the forearm, quite close to the wrist, was a thin red line. There's a tiny drop of apparently fresh blood on it. Green came over and looked closely at it for some minutes. Then he sat back in his chair, looking curiously at his friend's face. You've scratched yourself without knowing it, he said presently. There's no sign of a bruise. It must be something else that made the arm ache. Mary had sat very still, staring silently at his arm, as though the solution of the whole mystery lay there, actually written upon his skin. "'What's the matter? I see nothing very strange about a scratch,' said Green, in an unconvincing sort of voice. "'It was your cufflinks, probably, last night in your excitement.' But Marriott, white to the very lips, was trying to speak. The sweat stood in great beads on his forehead. At last, he leaned forward close to his friend's face. "'Look,' he said in a low voice that shook a little. "'Do you remember that red mark? I mean, underneath what you call the scratch.' Green admitted he saw something or other, and Marriott wiped the place clean with his handkerchief and told him to look again more closely. "'Yes, I see,' returned the other, lifting his head after a moment's careful inspection." It looks like an old scar. It is an old scar, whispered Marriott, his lips trembling. Now it all comes back to me. All what? Green fidgeted in his chair. He tried to laugh, but without success. His friend seemed bordering on collapse. Hush! Be quiet, and I'll tell you, he said. Field made that scar. For a whole minute, the two men looked at each other, full in the face without speaking. "'Field made that scar,' repeated Marriott at length in a louder voice. "'Field, you mean last night?' "'No, not last night. Years ago, at school with his knife, and I made a scar on his arm with mine.' Marriott was talking rapidly now. "'We exchanged drops of blood on each other's cuts. He put a drop in my arm, and I put one into his.' In the name of heaven, what for? It was a boy's compact. We made a secret pledge, a bargain. I remember it all too perfectly now. We'd been reading some dreadful book, and we swore to appear to one another. I mean, 
whoever died first swore to show himself to the other, and we sealed the compact with each other's blood. I remember it all so well, the hot summer afternoon in the playground seven years ago, and one of the masters caught us and confiscated the knives, and I have never thought of it again to this day. And you mean, stammered Green. But Marriott had no answer. He got up and crossed the room and lay down warily upon the sofa, hiding his face in his hands. Green himself was a bit nonplussed. He left his friend alone for a little while, thinking it all over. Suddenly, an idea seemed to strike him. He went over to where Marriott still lay motionless on the sofa and roused him. In any case, it was better to face the matter, whether there was an explanation or not. Giving in was always the silly exit. I say, Marriott, he began as the other turned his white face up to him. There's no good in being so upset about it. I mean, if it's all a hallucination, we know what to do. And if it isn't, well, we know what to think, don't we? I suppose so. But it frightens me horribly for some reason, returned his friend in a hushed voice. And the poor devil. But after all, if the worst is true, and that chap has kept his promise, well, he has. That's all, isn't it? Marriott nodded. There's only one thing that occurs to me, Green went on, and that is, you are quite sure that... that he really ate like that. And I mean that he actually ate anything at all. He finished blurting out his thought. Marriott stared at him for a moment and then said he could easily make certain. He spoke quietly. After the main shock, no lesser surprise could affect him. I put things away myself, he said, after we had finished. They are on the third shelf of that cupboard. No one's touched them since. He pointed without getting up, and Green took a hint and went over to look. Exactly, he said, after a brief examination, just as I thought. It was a partly hallucination at any rate. The things haven't been touched. Come and see for yourself. Together, they examined the shelf. There was the brown loaf, the plate of scones, the oat cake, all untouched. Even the glass of whiskey Marriott poured out stood there, with whiskey still in it. You were feeding no one, said Green. Field ate and drank nothing. He was not there at all. But the breathing urged the other in a low voice, staring with a dazed expression on his face. Green did not answer. He walked over to the bedroom while Mary had followed him with his eyes. He opened the door and listened. There was no need for words. The sound of deep, regular breathing came floating through the air. There was no hallucination about that at any rate. Mary could hear it where he stood in the other side of the room. Green closed the door and came back. There's only one thing to do, he declared with decision. Write home and find out about him, and meanwhile come and finish your reading in my rooms. I've got an extra bed. Agreed, returned the fourth-year man. There's no hallucination about that exam. I must pass that, whatever happens. And this is what they did. It was about a week later when Mary got the answer from his sister. Part of it he read out to Green. 
It is curious, she wrote, that in your letter you should have inquired about Field. It seems a terrible thing, but you know, only a short while ago, Sir John's patience became exhausted, and he turned him out of the house, they say, without a penny. Well, what do you think? He has killed himself. At least it looks like suicide. Instead of leaving the house, he went down to the cellar and simply starved himself to death. They're trying to suppress it, of course, but I heard it all from my maid, who got it from their footman. They found the body on the 14th, and the doctor said that he died 12 hours before. He was dreadfully thin. Then he died on the 13th, said Green. Marriott nodded. That's the very night he came to see you. Marriott nodded again.